talking about that, but we're not going to be in Psalm 135. We're just going to kind of be, like I said, all over the place, two, two places primarily eventually, um, in Genesis and then in Esther. Now, the idea of being chosen deals with the idea of God being sovereign. I mean, that's a huge part of God choosing us in any way. So a question we, we kind of have to wrestle with is how sovereign would we say God is? I mean, what I mean is, would we say God is completely sovereign or is God just kind of, sort of sovereign? I mean, is is God the, the kind of sovereign that He is sovereign all the time regardless of whatever situation comes into our life, whether it be good or bad? Or is God sovereign only in the times when things go well for us and maybe we didn't anticipate it? Let me tell two stories to illustrate what I'm talking about. On March 1st, 1951, a church was scheduled to have choir practice at 7.30. As the pastor and his wife were prepared to leave, they discovered their potty training age daughter had had an accident and they had to change her and they were late, which was very unusual for them. One of the members of the choir was a high school sophomore. She was having a problem with her geography homework and was also late. And this was unusual for the girl who was normally early to church. Two sisters were leaving to go when their car wouldn't start and they were late, which was unusual for them. A Sunday school teacher was walking out the door when she received a call from her mother who needed her help. She went to see about her mother and then went to church, but she was late, which was unusual. One guy took a nap before choir. He slept through the alarm, so he was late, which was unusual for him. Now, for one reason or another, all the members of the church choir were late for choir practice, which was unusual for them. And when they arrived, what they found was that the church was in flames. There was a gas leak at the church, and around 7.45, the church exploded. Had they all arrived on time, they would have been probably injured or possibly killed in the explosion. Clearly, we can see God's sovereignty in protecting them. But let's think of a different story, also a true story. The story of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, and Roger, whose name I can't pronounce, and Pete Fleming. Now, these four men determined it was God's will for them to take the gospel to the Wadoni people of Ecuador. They spent a significant amount of time preparing to take the gospel to these people. They flew to the place where they would make contact with the Wadonis in order to share the gospel with them, and they set up camp. Over a period of time, they made contact with one curious Wadoni they named George. The contact seemed friendly, so they decided they would go to the village and officially make contact with them. Now, what they didn't know was that George had lied to the people about the missionaries' intentions. And as they were headed to the village to share the gospel, a group of Wadoni warriors were headed to them to kill them. And the Wadoni warriors attacked them and killed them all, the bodies of the missionaries were dumped in the river where they floated away and were later found downstream from their base. Outside of George, the missionaries never made contact with any Wadoni, never had a, con a conversation with them, and they never got to share the gospel with them. Now the question is, in which situation was God sovereign? In which situation was God's will accomplished? What if the answer is both. Because we can easily see how God's sovereignty 
and God's will was accomplished in protecting the church members from being hurt in the explosion. But it's a little more difficult to see how it could have been God's will for the missionaries to die the way that they died. But what if, what if what happened to the missionaries was God's will so that Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, and a few others could go to those same Wodoni people and they were able to reach virtually the entire tribe for Jesus to such an extent that almost every member of that tribe is still Christian today. What if what happened to those missionaries was God's will so that it would motivate Americans and British and other Western nations into giving and going to missions in greater degree than they had gone in hundreds of years. I bring all of this up because tonight we are continuing our study on the idea of being chosen by God. But we're considering the idea of being chosen by God to place us where He wants us to be so we can do what God would want us to do. So the idea tonight is not... We are where we are by accident or circumstance. But we are where we are in life according to God's divine purpose. His divine design. So the the idea I want to talk about is this. God chose to place us where He wants us so He can work in us, through us, and for us to accomplish His will in the world around us. One of the truths I've come to understand is as a disciple of Jesus, we are not where we are by random chance and circumstance. Rather, we are where we are by divine design. From what I can tell in Scripture, God orchestrates events to place His people where He wants them to be so they can accomplish His will in the world. And we're going to look at this tonight in the Old Testament from two particular people. First is the story of Joseph. The other is the story of Queen Esther. In both stories, what we're going to see is God orchestrates events in their life. And at first they can seem like bad things. But God orchestrates events in their lives to place them where He wants them to be. So that he could work in them and through them and for them to accomplish his will in the world around them. So we're going to start with Joseph. So turn to Genesis 37. We'll start at verse 18, page 37 in your pew Bible. And so the story of Joseph up to this point, he is one of the 12 sons of Israel. He is, though, not just one of the sons. He is the favored son. Not favored a little bit, but favored a lot. He is, at this point, he's almost, he's the second to the youngest. His brother Benjamin is the only one younger than him. He is the first daughter, or the first son, of Israel's favorite wife. And Jacob has made it very clear To his other sons, which son is the favorite? Joseph has been given a a robe of many colors, which was kind of set him apart from his brothers. Joseph also 
not has told on his brothers for doing things they weren't supposed to do, which did not endear him to them. And Joseph has had a dream that he told his brothers about. And in the dream, he saw his brothers bow down before him. But not just his brothers. He also saw his brothers and his mom and dad bow down before him. They did not like him. So Joseph is sent by his dad to go and check on his brothers. At this point, he's around 17 years of age. His brothers hate him and they throw him into a pit. Look at Genesis 37 and verse 18. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say some evil beast hath devoured him and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it and he delivered him out of their hands. And he said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, shed no blood, but cast him into the pit that is in the wilderness and lay no hand upon him. And and his plan, it says, was that he might rid them or save them out of their hands to deliver them to his father again. It came to pass when Joseph was come to his brother and they stripped off Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. They took him and cast him in the pit and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. They lifted up their eyes and looked and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah saw, said unto his brethren, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let us not lay our hand upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. What a guy. What a guy, right? Let's not kill him. He's our brother. We'll just sell him into slavery instead. That's a better deal. Then they were passed by the Midianite merchants and they drew up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. So they sold him into slavery. When he gets to, to Egypt, turn to uh, Genesis 39 and 1. So time has passed. Joseph is carried into Egypt. It says, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard of an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was prosperous man in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw the Lord was with him, and the Lord made all that he do to prosper his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had put into his hand. And it came to pass from that from the time that he had made him overseer in his house that over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hands and knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. So Joseph is sold as a slave to Egypt, but not just to anyone. He's sold as a slave to the captain of Pharaoh's guards. A very important person, a significant person 
in the nation. And so Joseph is now a slave serving this pagan. And as he does, God is with him. I mean, this is a bad situation Joseph's life is in. He has been tossed in a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery by his brothers, abandoned by his brothers. Now he's been bought as a slave, being treated as a slave, but we're repeatedly told the Lord was with him. God had not abandoned him in this time. And God had blessed him to such an extent that even the pagan recognized that Joseph's God was blessing his house because of Joseph. And so he made him the the chief steward. He had had the run of the place. Only, Only Potiphar outranked Joseph. And as he did this, it blessed the Egyptians' house as well. And Joseph, it says, was a goodly person and well-favored. And kind of a part of what that means is Joseph was good-looking. And that comes into play in just a few verses. Now, look at verse 7. And it came to pass after these things that the master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, Lie with me. But he refused. And he said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master withholdeth not or knows not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he has into my hand. There is none greater in his house than I. Neither has he kept back anything from me but you, because thou art his wife. How then could I do this thing, this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph's physical attributes catch the attention of Potiphar's wife. And while Potiphar is out doing his duty for Egypt... She is conspiring to get Joseph to sleep with her. But Joseph is still a godly man. He is not going to to betray his God. And he is not going to betray the man that has been good to him as a slave master. As far as a slave master would go, he will not do it. But it came to pass, verse 10, that as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie with her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went to the house to do business. And there was none of his men in the house therein. And she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and he fled and got him out. And it came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth. She called unto the men of the house and spake unto them saying, see, he hath brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us. And he came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. She spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in to me to mock me. And it came to pass I lifted up my voice and cried, and he left his garment with me and fled out. And it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did the servant to me, and his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him, put him in the prison, in the place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. So now, Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, tossed in a pit, sold by his brothers, bought into slavery, is now wrongfully accused of attempted rape and put in prison. But notice the prison he's put in, where the king's prisoners were bound. Again, this is going to be significant in a little while. 
But notice these next few verses. Even in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him mercy. And gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand. All the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there. He was the doer thereof. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand. Because the Lord was with Joseph. And that which he did. The Lord made it to prosper. So Joseph. God is with Joseph even there. And it's noticeable to the people around him. Now, two years go on in the next chapter. And in the next chapter, what happens is two of Pharaoh's key people are the baker and his butlers, what the King James Bible says, are cast into prison because they make the Pharaoh angry. Joseph, or they each have a dream. The baker has a dream about a loaf of bread being put up high and the birds coming to eat from it. And the butler has a dream about squeezing grapes into a cup. They don't know what it means. And they talk to Joseph and Joseph tells the butler, oh, that means you're going to go back and you're going to be set back in the same place where you came from. Pharaoh is going to restore you back to being his butler. So hearing this, the baker says, huzzah. Tell me the good news of my dream. And he says, Pharaoh is going to impel you and the birds are going to eat your flesh after you're dead. And it comes to pass exactly as Joseph says. So then we get to chapter 41. Two years, it says in verse 1. Came to pass at the end of two full years. Pharaoh dreamed. Behold, he stood by the river. And behold, there came up out of the river seven well-fed And well-favored, fat-fleshed cows. It says kind in the King James, but it's cows. And they fed in a meadow. And behold, seven other came up after them of the river, ill-favored and lean-fleshed, and stood by the other cows by the brink of the river. And the ill-favored and lean-fleshed cows did eat up the seven well-favored and fat cows. And Pharaoh awoke. He went back to sleep and he dreamed a second time. There were seven ears of corn on one stalk. They were good. And then there were seven thin ears blasted by the east wind sprung up after them. And the seven thin ears devoured the seven good and full ears. And Pharaoh awoke and behold, it was a dream. So Pharaoh now has a dream. This terrible dream. It wakes him up. He doesn't know what it means. So he calls for his magicians to come. And he tells them, here's the dream I had. What does this mean? And they say, we we don't know. We don't have a clue what this means. And about this time, the butler says, oh, wait, I I remember something now. A couple of years ago, you got mad at me and the chief baker. And you put us in prison. We both had dreams. And so there was a prisoner there and we told him our dreams and he told us what they meant. And it came to pass exactly like he said. So they sent for Joseph. Verse 14, brought him hastily out of the dungeon. They had him shaved, changed his garments, and he came into Pharaoh. Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have a dream, and there is none that can interpret it. And I have heard say of thee that thou can understand dreams to interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. So Pharaoh tells him the dream in these next few verses. He goes on down through there and he tells him the exact same dream. 
And Joseph interprets it. And what it means is, he says, there's not two dreams, there's just one. But God gave it to you twice to show that it is certain to come to pass. And here's what's happening. There are going to be seven years of prosperity in Egypt. And after the seven years, there are going to be seven years of famine. Such a great famine is going to come upon the land in these seven years that people are going to forget these seven years of prosperity. And then Joseph says, so here's what I think you should do. I think you should set somebody over the land in these years of prosperity to collect food, tax the people, get some food, keep it, so that when the seven years of famine come, Egypt does not die out. Pharaoh says in verse 37 of chapter 41, it says, Pharaoh, the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh, in the eyes of all of his servants, Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this, and a man in whom the Spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according to thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. So he sets Joseph up, second in command in all of Egypt. Pharaoh is the only person who outranks him in all of the land. Now, keep in mind all that's had to happen here. Right? Joseph was abandoned by his brothers, betrayed by his brothers, tossed into a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery by his brothers. But the slave master that just happened to buy him was a significant and important person in the nation. What, what are the odds that this would be the person who would buy him? And then Joseph is accused falsely of something he doesn't do. And he is sent to not just any prison in Egypt, but to the one where the king's prisoners are. And while he's there, he just happens to meet up with two prisoners the Pharaoh has put in there. He interprets their dreams, plants the seed to tell Pharaoh I'm wrongfully accused. And then two years later, when Pharaoh has a dream... The butler's like, oh, I remember there is a guy and he can answer this sort of thing, Pharaoh. So the, the story goes on and the good years come. Joseph prepares and then the bad years begin to come. Chapter 42, we find that the bad years have extended beyond the borders of Egypt. It says now Jacob saw there was corn in Egypt because there's famine also really all throughout the land. So where Jacob or, or Israel and his, uh, and his other sons are, the famine has come there and they don't have anything either. But there's stuff in Egypt, thanks to Joseph. Jacob says to his sons, why do you look upon one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy us from thence that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers, the ten that pushed him into the pit, go down there. Benjamin stays at home with dad. In fact, that's what it says. Benjamin, Joseph's brother, did not was not sent. So the brothers, I'll, tell, I'll summarize the story because we are running quickly out of time. The brothers go down into Egypt in order to buy grain. Lo and behold, the person they stand before is their brother whom they sold into slavery all these years ago. But they don't recognize him. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He's all garmed up like they are. But he recognizes them. 
And they have to come and because he's the chief person of the land, they they bow before him and he remembers his dream. And there it is, his brothers bowing before him just like he dreamed all those years ago. But Joseph, he tells them, he goes to him and he says, who are you guys? They say, oh, we're brothers, fathers of the same man. There's 12 of us. One is not, one's dead, and the other, the youngest, is with our dad. Joseph says, no, no, that's not who you guys are. You're spies. You've come to see how weak the nation is, and you're going to lead an invasion. So he puts them in jail, and he leaves them there. And they're, they're terrified. They, they begin to kind of realize, it begins to set in, this may be they're reaping what they've sowed. They did evil to their brother, and now evil is happening to them. So he goes to them, and he says... You know what? I fear God. Perhaps you are telling the truth. So here's what I'll do. I'm going to keep one of you here in prison as a pledge from you that you are brothers. Then I want you to go take the grain to your people that are starving. And you get your little brother that's there with your dad. And you bring him back. And when he comes back, I'll let the one that stays here go. They agree to it. They go back. They tell tell Jacob what's happened. Jacob refuses to send his youngest son now. And so the one son remains in jail. He languishes in jail until all the grain is eaten up. Jacob says, go back to Egypt, get some more. And they say, we can't. You won't send us our brother. And the man pretty clearly said, don't come back without your brother. So Jacob sends Benjamin with them. They come back, they have a feast, and the story goes on. It's really neat. I wish we had time to get into it. And he has this big feast with them. And then he sends them off like everything has gone well. And they're rejoicing that things are fine. But Joseph is still dealing with his brothers. And he has had somebody that works for him put his chief, his chalice that that they had seen him drink out of in Benjamin's bag. And then he sends out the guards to go and get them and bring them back. One of you, he says, stole my chalice. I cannot believe you would do that after the way I've treated you. He tells him, no, it wasn't us. Let the one, if you find it among us, let that person be killed. And so Joseph has them start from the oldest to the youngest so that it looks like things are going well until it gets to Benjamin. They dump his sack and there it is. And the brothers are, oh no. And Joseph says, we're going to keep this one. We're going to send the rest of you home. And they're like, we can't. If we go back without him, our dad's going to die. He only had two sons he really cared anything about. The other one's dead. And we have this one. He'll just die if we go back. And he says, no, no, this is the way it is. So Judah says, I'll, I'll stay. My life for his. Stay and kill me and let me stay and send him back. Joseph then realizing maybe his brothers have changed a little bit. He lets them go. He, he tells them who he is. I am Joseph. And that's when we get to chapter 45. So look at chapter 45. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before them. All that stood by and he cried, calls every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him. While Joseph made himself known unto his brethren, he wept aloud. The Egyptians of the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer, for they were troubled at his presence. Which I think would be an understatement. And Joseph said unto his 
Brethren, I'm Joseph, they were troubled his presence. Joseph said unto his brethren, come near unto me, I pray you. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now, look at these next words. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in which there shall neither be Earing nor harvest. And God, God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth, to save your lives by a great deliverance. So it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So Joseph, at this point, he's had a lot of time to think. And he's come to realize He's not here by random chance or circumstance. There is a divine design that brought him here. That God had placed him where he wanted him so he could work in him and through him and for him to accomplish his will. Now, the story goes on. And Jacob and all the people of Israel are brought into the land of Egypt. Pharaoh gives them the best of the land to live in. Um, the brothers grow and things go on. And eventually, though, eventually, dad dies. And we get to Genesis chapter 50. Jacob dies. And the brothers begin to think to themselves, he was only nice to us because dad would have felt bad. And so they go to him and they say, hey, you know, before he died, and you weren't in the room at the time, but before he died, dad came to us. And he said, be sure to tell Joseph to be kind to y'all for what you did after I'm gone. And Joseph says to them, fear not, in chapter 50, verse 19, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Joseph's terrible circumstances, which were hard, were miserable, would have been heart-wrenching. They were not random chance or circumstance. It wasn't bad luck. It was all part of God's divine design for Joseph's life. So Joseph could be where God wanted him to be, so God could work in him, through him, and for him to accomplish his will in the world. Now, the next example is Queen Esther. So turn to the book of Esther. And we will cover this quickly. Ish. Like Joseph, the story of Esther is one about God's divine design for a person's life to get them to the place God wants them to be so he can work in them, through them, and for them to accomplish his will in the world around them. Esther's family was likely taken out of Jerusalem by the Babylonians during one of the two great removals. right? So Jerusalem twice was conquered. And in both times, there were Israelites taken by the Babylonians and they were displaced. And they were made to live somewhere else. One time it was a portion. The second time it was essentially all of them. Esther's family was taken in this time. By the time of the book of Esther... Her family has died. And she is being raised by her cousin. So get that in your mind. Esther's family 
Esther's nation has been violently conquered. Her city has been violently attacked. Her family has been violently ripped from their home, forcibly taken to live somewhere else. Her family has died. Her parents have died. And she's living with a cousin. Chapter 1 tells the story of the queen of Babylon, or not Babylon, the queen of Persia at this time. How she loses her throne. The king is throwing this great big party. He decides he wants his queen to come and show her beauty to all the people. She refuses to come for one reason or another. And when she does, the the king is embarrassed in front of all the people. And his counselors say, hey, if you don't do something about Queen Vashti, all of our wives are going to hear that the queen didn't do what you said. And all the men of Persia are going to suffer from their rebellious wives. You better do something. And so the king does. He, he casts her out. He banishes her from his presence. Leaves him without a, king, a queen. Chapter 2. Things, I would say probably the liquor has worn off. And King Ahasuerus remembered Vashti. What she had done. What was decreed against her. And I think the implication is he was sad. Then said the king's servants that ministered him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in the provinces of his kingdom. They may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, uh, to the house of the women, and to the custody of Hegai, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things be for purification given them. And let the maiden which pleases the king be queen instead of, instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king. And he did that. So so here's this opportunity for some random good-looking young woman to become queen. But this isn't like what women, little girls imagine about being a queen. This isn't like the prince falls in love with them and sweeps them up off the street. This is far more brutal than that. Instead, what happens is the king appoints soldiers and others to go throughout his kingdom. And basically, they just sort of walk through the streets and look for good-looking young virgins. And if they see one, they take them. They snatch them away from their family. And then they take them to the palace. And the king is going to look at them. And if they please him, he's going to say, I guess you can do. And she'll be the queen. This is what happens. In the process of all of this going on, Esther, whose real name was Hadassah, is taken. She's the one who wins, so to speak. The king sees her. This king likes her. And the king marries her. So again, keep in mind what's happened. Nation is conquered. Violently taken from home. Parents die. Raised by a cousin. Violently taken off the streets. Forcibly made to be the wife of the king. Random chance and circumstance, bad luck, or somehow a part of God's divine design. Well, we get to chapter 3, and we meet a new guy, a bad guy. After these things, did the king Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agat, and advanced him and set him above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, neither did him reverence. 
So, Haman is promoted. He's basically like what we talked about with Joseph. He's second in command. He's really important. And everybody's supposed to bow before him. But for some reason, Mordecai, her cousin, refuses. And even though everybody else in the land does, Mordecai doesn't. And Haman can't handle it. And so he's like, it's all worthless so long as Haman is alive and refuses to bow. Or more, uh, not Haman. Haman's not bipolar. So long as Mordecai is alive and refusing to bow. So he comes up with a plan. He's going to kill Mordecai, but not just Mordecai. All of Mordecai's people in all of the province of, of Persia. All of the Jews in Persia. So he goes to the king and he says, i got a plan. There's, a, there's people in your nation and they're troublemakers. You can search the history records. They always rebel. They're always troublemakers. Here's what I think you should do. I think you should kill them all. I think you should send out a decree through the land that says on a certain day, everybody can rise up and kill all these people and take all their stuff. And they can keep a huge portion of it for themselves. And then some of it would go to the king's treasury and there's more money for you. What do you think? And so Ahasuerus says, hey, that's a good idea, I think. I think that's a really good idea. And he has Haman write it up. He puts his seal on it and he sends it throughout the land. And on a certain day, all the Jews are going to die. And I think the implication in the writing is the Jews aren't even allowed to fight back. It's not like on this day there's going to be an MMA fight to the death. It is, if there's a Jew living next to you, you can just go kill them. And if the Jew fights back, then the soldier will kill them in the process. I mean, it is just a, a decree of execution onto the Jews. Well, Mordecai, of course, hears about this. He is saddened. He goes to the king's gate. He wears sackcloth and ashes, weeping and wailing. Esther sees him. She begins to talk to him to try to cheer him up. But Mordecai is not having any of it. And he tells her, this is what's happened. And you need to go to the king and try to put a stop to it. Now, the problem with this is no one can just go to the king. That the king has to send for you and allow you to come. And if you walked into his presence unannounced and he didn't hold the scepter and point it at you, then the people around would just kill you. You were going to die. So Esther says, I haven't been summoned in 30 days, and if I go, he'll kill me. So look at what Mordecai says to her. Verse, chapter 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then there shall deliverance or safety and deliverance arise from the Jews to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. Right, so Esther, okay, you're not going to go to him. You realize, though, when this happens, you're not going to escape because you're the queen. You're going to die in the process, too. And then he says these words, which are like the key verses throughout the book. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows, Esther, if your life hasn't brought you to this place so you could be the one to go to the king and say what needs to be said and bring about the deliverance from Israel. Did Esther become the queen by random chance or circumstance? Was it bad luck that caused her life to be in this place? Or is it God's divine design placing her where he wanted her to be so he could work in her, through her and for her? To accomplish his will of delivering the Jews at this time. 
course, in both stories, the idea is it was God's choice to place them where they were by divine design so he could work in them, through them, and for them to accomplish his will. As disciples of Jesus, we are not where we are in our lives by random chance and circumstance, by bad luck, or by the fact 2020 is what it is. We are where we are because God has chosen to place us where he can best work through us to accomplish his will in the world. Scripture is very clear even in the New Testament about this. We know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose, for whom God did foreknow he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, I have to rush through this. But the context of this promise is suffering, hardship. So the promise of Romans 8, 28 and 29 is not God will work through all good things that come into my life and they will turn out for my good and for God's glory. The promise is all things. God will work through all the good things that come into my life for my good, for his glory. And God will work through all the awful things that come into my life for my good and for his glory. Now, a key part of understanding this, though, is what is my good? What is, from God's perspective, what is my ultimate good? And if we're not careful, what we can do is we can bring sort of an American, earthly, me-centered mindset, mindset to the passage. And when we do, we mess it all up. Because when I'm the primary focus, uh, and my primary focus is me and my life on this earth, then good evolves, revolves around things like my comfort, my safety, my pleasure, my health, my financial security. Therefore, since God causes everything to work out for, for my good, then everything that comes into my life should make me more comfortable. It should make me safer. It should make my life more enjoyable. It should make me healthier and it should make me wealthier and it should make me prosper. And when things don't turn out this way, we get discouraged and we begin to determine maybe the Bible is flawed. Maybe God doesn't keep his promises. The problem isn't that the Bible is flawed or God doesn't keep his promises. The problem is we are misunderstanding what ultimate good is from God's perspective. But we don't have to. See, we don't have to wonder what is God's idea of what is our ultimate good. He tells us that he might be conformed to the image of his son. That's the ultimate good. We would be like Jesus. That is God's ultimate desire for our lives. And a hard truth for us to understand sometimes is God's greatest desires for our life do not revolve around our comfort. And they do not revolve around our safety. And they do not revolve around our pleasure, our health, or our financial security. God's greatest desires for our life revolve around our salvation, our sanctification, our having Christ-like character, and our doing His will. And so God will absolutely work everything in our lives for our good and His glory. So what we can expect is no matter what happens in 2020, 2021, or any other time in our life, God will work through that. He will work through that to bring us to salvation through faith in Jesus. He will work through that to forge Christ-like character within us. He will work through that to help us progress in sanctification. He will work through that to enable us 
to do what he wants us to do in the world around us. Or he has chosen to place us where he wants us so he can work in us, through us and for us to accomplish his work, will in the world around us. This is God's divine design for each and every one of us. And we can be sure no matter what happens, this is what God is going to do. He is going to work through it to accomplish our good, being like Jesus, so that we can accomplish His will in the world around us. So as we close, I want to give you three questions. And it really is quick. Three questions to reflect on for the rest of the year. Two weeks. Write them down. Think about them as you read your Bible, as you pray. Number one, where am I in my life today? So think along the lines of financially, vocationally, relationally, and spiritually. Today, where has God brought me in my life right now? Where am I? Where, Where are my finances? Where are my relationships with others? What am I doing in my life? What is my spiritual life like? Second question. How can I see God's divine design bringing me? To where I am today, okay? So if I'm not where I am by random chance and circumstance, as I look at where I am, financially, vocationally, relationally, and spiritually, how can I see God's hand in the circumstances that brought me to where I am? How might God have worked in ways I didn't think about at the time, but now looking back, I can see it was God guiding and bringing me to where I am right now. And then thirdly, What has God placed me where I am today to do for His glory? God has brought us here where we are by divine design. He has placed us where He wants us. So He can work in us and through us and for us to accomplish His will in the world around us. Then what is it that's God's will for you to do in the world around you right now? Right Again, think about where... What God has done to prepare you for such a time as this. There are no wasted experiences in this life. God is a redeemer and he can redeem the good, the bad, the ugly. And he can redeem them to use them to accomplish his will in the world around you. So what has God been working in your life preparing you to do? Because it is something. Make no mistake. God wants to work in and through and for all of us. To accomplish His will in the world around us. We are meant to do something for the glory of God where we are. So what has God prepared you to do? Think about these questions during your Bible study. As you pray, as you drive to work. Your downtime. Think when you're discouraged. Think when you think about how blessed your life is. How wonderful things are. Think when you're discouraged about how hard things have been. Think about them. Answer them. God absolutely has a divine design for each of our lives. We need to recognize this, trust this, and live confidently and passionately for God to seek to accomplish what He has put us here to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We are thankful. Lord, not so much thankful for all the things that have come into our lives. I can't imagine Joseph being thankful for being tossed into the pit. Or Esther being thankful for being taken forcibly from her kingdom. 
but thankful that you are a God who is not passive, but active. And no matter what comes into our life, you are the God who can redeem those things and use them for our good, for your glory. And Lord, we want to be used by you. We want you to work through us to accomplish your will around us. So open our eyes to see your hand bringing us to where we are. Open our eyes to see what your divine design for our life is. And let us give ourselves to do it. Father, what you have for us, whatever that would be, it is far greater than anything we could think up for ourselves. Whatever we think of, whatever we come up with, it is so far below what an omniscient, omnipotent God can come up with. So let us seek you. Let us surrender to you. And when you show us how you've prepared us for this, this work, let us give ourselves to it no matter what it would be. And let us feel your pleasure as we do it. Let us see your kingdom come and your will be done in the world around us. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.